are listening to the Down the Wormhole podcast, exploring the strange and fascinating relationship between science and religion. This week, our hosts are... This is Rachel Jackson, rabbi at Agudas Israel Congregation in Hendersonville, North Carolina. And the thing I'm most frightened about if I were to live in space would be the floating aimlessly without being like being untethered to where I was supposed to be. My name's Adam Pryor. I work at Bethany College in Lindsborg, Kansas. Uh, the thing that terrifies me most about potentially living in space is the fact that it is so cold it can boil you. Because that shouldn't happen. Kendra Holtmore, PhD student at Boston University. And what terrifies me most about space is accidentally flying my spaceship into a black hole. Ian Benz, Associate Professor of Elementary Science Education at UNC Charlotte. The first thing that came to mind about what terrified me the most is like the floating away and my favorite snack being just out of reach and not being able to get it. Zach Jackson, UCC pastor in Reading, Pennsylvania. And I'm having a really hard time because so many things terrify me about space travel, but at the same time, I don't care because I really want to go to space. And I feel like like I'm afraid of a lot of things. Like I'm I'm afraid of praying mantises. But like if it meant that I could go to space, like I'd go to space with a spacecraft full of praying mantises and we would just we would just do this thing. I'm in it. Aww. <laughs> Aww. That is the weirdest. So that's horrifying <laughs> to think about all those little like little knife hands. I have so around. many questions. Oh, so now. very many. So, so very many. I I can't get the image of a, a spaceship full of praying mantises out of my head now. Right, that's, with like their little knife arms out in their their wings, trying to flap away, <laughs> but they're all like expanded outward and flailing around. Because gravity. Ugh. It's horrifying, but I'd still do it if it meant I could go to space. (laughs) The guy who has worms in his kitchen is afraid of praying mantises. Like, that's... I mean, you eat eat bugs. I also like the image of a pastor such as Zach with his congregation of praying mantises. (laughs) That's the way that I'm thinking about it. So religious. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> my son told me um, recently, um, Dad, I know you're really sad that you're n- you'll never be an astronaut, so maybe I can go to space for you someday. Oh. <laughs> and he's five, and he understands. <laughs> so sweet. Kids know. They know. That's so funny. today we're talking about biosignatures, <laughs> which is one of the more— We're also talking about non sequiturs. Yeah. <laughs> Um, <laughs> oh no, there's no way to get from praying mantises to biosignatures. I was trying to figure it out. I got. I got what if there was a cloud of praying mantises on Venus? What would that look like? I wonder. Could we identify a cloud of praying mantises? How would you know? <laughs> I, I, I like that. Anyway, okay, back so to back biosignatures. To biosignatures. <laughs> um, Segue or so no? One of my like personal interests and why I've been excited about doing this series. Except, you know, when I show up and don't talk and then disappear midway through an episode, um, <laughs> is that uh, is that I think biosignatures are really, really fascinating and also something that like makes the news, but we don't often understand why. 
or what's really going on, or if we should care about it, or if we shouldn't care about it. Um, because I think there's this like expectation for people that unless we find alien life, a la the NPR news stories about various monoliths appearing around the world, people <laughs> don't want to know until like we have like really intelligent aliens with whom we could have a conversation. And most of the stuff that's being looked for for biosignatures is so far, 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 far away from that that it's really difficult, I think, for for the general public to understand like why would this be significant? Because um, really what you're looking for with biosignatures, um, for the most part, when you talk about astrobiology, is you're looking for biosignatures that would be indicative of, think of it like a colony of bacterial life, such that that colony of of little critters is putting off some sort of chemical into the atmosphere or into an otherwise observable spectrum around the planet or other item that they're on so that you could say potentially there's life there because you couldn't otherwise explain how that particular chemical got there. That's a lot less exciting than random monoliths appearing around the world. And yet, probably far more important. Um, and so I've been spending the past, I don't know, feels like a long time now, two, three years, just thinking about why it is people should care about these biosignatures and what you would do with them if you found one. And luckily, we recently did, potentially. We're not sure yet, but it seems like it could be. And I just want to say that's my parody of all NASA announcements regarding scientific findings. <laughs> there is a chance. There is a chance, perhaps, perhaps possibly. That could maybe be. we um, found something. We have found something that resembles right. this. And I don't I don't fault him for that. That's that's actually like a good way to present it. But yeah, it doesn't doesn't make for sensational grabbing headlines. So what would you do with these findings, these microbial aliens? Well, one, I hope we protect them and don't treat them like we've treated this planet. But two, um, in general, what I think most astrobiologists are hoping for is that they would end up finding a second biogenesis, which is sort of one of the weird things about biology that's different from other sciences, right? We have one instance of life, and it's life on this planet. So finding a second example of life would potentially, or a third or a fourth or fifth, ideally, the more examples of other instances of life evolving in the universe, the better off you are able to explain how it is that something like life arises. But you need to find some other instances of that in order to start making some better educated guesses about how that happens. I... <sighs> In thinking about um, like astrobiology, biosignatures, I, I know that we talked about this or at least referenced it in our last episode, but I'm thinking again about the, the tardigrades that we spilled on the moon. And it's just kind of interesting, you know, humans, we always want to get our grubby hands all over everything. And when we do that, we leave behind all of our germs and whatever other like microbial things. So what are the chances that, you know, if we find um, biosignatures, 
could it be that we've just like already put our grubby hands all over something and left something behind that evolved after so much time and is now like thriving in whatever environment we left it in like the tardigrades could they maybe like live a long time and then become monsters and then come attack us on earth <laughs> i mean that's like being a little dramatic but <laughs> they could live a while um or, or or maybe less less dramatic what if something were to like ricochet off the moon again that that's still a little far-fetched but you know it could ricochet off the moon and and pick up the tardigrades and then we find it we're like wow look at this look what we found floating right. in outer space you know but it's just our, from Earth. Our, our dirt. Yeah. People at NASA are real worried about that. <laughs> they, they're like super cleaners, I've decided. Because they sterilize everything before they send it off into space just to try and avoid that sort of situation. That you would have like a false positive because you brought something with you. Um, and then depending on the... Yeah, like astronaut poop is the other example, yes. I think. Yeah, that seems... Uh, like actually, yeah. that one actually seems likely... <laughs> Plausible. Astronaut poop? Yeah. You want to re- unpack that a little? I mean, don't literally unpack <laughs> yeah, so- it, but like, <laughs> why, why is that more of, a, of an issue than anything else? Oh, well, I think Adam should answer that question, but I was, I brought that up because there is an article about um, astronaut poop, which apparently they have in little bags and they left behind on the moon when they went And so there's just these like bags of poo sitting on the moon. And, you know, we now know that poop has a lot of interesting things inside of it um, that are part of our microbiome. And uh, so once now that we know that, it's also possible that like maybe something in the microbiome that's in the astronaut poop could still be alive on the moon. And so... My understanding, and Adam, maybe if you've like seen something more recent, was that there there's a plan to go retrieve those poop bags mm-hmm. and look inside of them to see if anything is still alive. It's like a strange 60-year science experiment. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. It's like accidental. <laughs> kind of the tardigrades. It's another accidental uh, occurrence that will probably become some kind of experiment. So one of the things I hate most when I'm walking my dog on the trail is when somebody leaves behind a bag of dog poop on the side. And I'm like, you went through the work of cleaning this up and left it here in the woods with plastic. That's so irresponsible. And I I imagine myself that like that's just the sort of thing that some busy entitled person does on the trail. But you're blowing my mind here to know that my heroes have done the same thing <laughs> to the moon. <laughs> you mean to tell me there is Buzz Aldrin poop somewhere in a bag on the moon? So It'll did they show up on eBay? Sorry. <sighs> well, <laughs> I wonder though. You know, and I just don't know. I mean, but it seems to me that was possibly planned because of the fact that when you put all of that poop back on to remove it, you are increasing the payload for liftoff from the um, the moon, which what they wanted was moon rocks. So right. you're taking the space of moon rocks if you put poop back on. So you're leaving buzz rocks. Exactly. Space rocks. <laughs> <laughs> 
I mean, yeah. I think those were all those were all like very serious considerations, like particularly with the first set of like, moon flights. And it was a period in time early enough in NASA's history, right? Like where just getting to the moon was a bigger deal than maybe working out all the details of exactly what we are or aren't going to leave there. Right. Right. Um, in part because, you know, that those early space flights and that space race between NASA and or between the US and Russia um, led to the Outer Space Treaty, where a lot of these like very specific details about what it means for international countries to engage in space flight and space exploration, like what what dictums they have to abide by or they should abide by. Let's put it that way. And and just to just to add one little piece of trivia, it's um I was just looking this up a little bit more. Ninety-six bags of stuff yeah. of of from each, you know, urine, poop, um, other things that might have been expelled from the human cool. body. Ninety-six bags. Ninety-six bags. So it's so it's not. Um, so that would be an amazing science experiment because then you're not just looking at one or two data points. You're looking at all these different data points from all these different. Um, individual biomes huh. of different people right so again from a from a science standpoint how do you make lemons out of lemonade how do you make science out of poop um this is a really mm, poop good lemonade. <laughs> i cannot believe that i have not seen a science fiction movie that uses this as a premise <laughs> that like <laughs> that like the evolution of life on a planet was started by like an intergalactic pit stop where like a kid had to pee or something and peed on the planet. Yeah. And then ah, that's a missed opportunity. Well, yeah, I think you're, I we'll think take you have it to up, write it. Zach. <sighs> I'm so busy. <laughs> I mean, but, but really like serious scientific work on things like panspermia are not that different mm-hmm. from like what you're describing, right? Like that's, it's, it's just a short step away. And for those who, that's right. Like who would want to know, right? Panspermia is this idea that you would send off living things from one place to other worlds in order to try and seed life on them, right? This is in principle a very similar sort of proposition. And also that ties into the theory of of life on Earth that mm-hmm. that life on Earth began with life, microscopic life that was on a comet, you know, right. in the frozen water or something, or that you know something that had hit. Mars, say, and then a chunk of Mars that had some microbial life that landed on Earth and seeded, hence the spermia, the seed part. I mean, you could, again, you could even take, if we're really looking at the biosignature of the phosphine in the upper atmosphere of Venus, um, which is, you know, as far as Venus goes, um, the most, the most hospitable place in Venus is in the upper atmosphere, right? The rest of it is just worse than a hellhole. So looking at that, but it's, it's in such a high atmosphere that again, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that if something were to just pass through that, but keep going and not be sucked down into the gravity, then that too could then find its place elsewhere and un- unwittingly colonize. That would probably be a wrong term, but mm. spread the seed. Uh, but I, I want to go back to um, something you'd said, Adam. You were talking in your introduction to this biosignature. Um, you started saying we should know more about it, 
and that it's important even though it doesn't have a sexy headline. Why is it, I mean, other than the scientific curiosity and that question of biogenesis, which I think is a nice philosophical and perhaps scientific explanation, do you think that there's another reason why we should actually be interested in this or why, or rather why it's important? Yeah. I mean, I guess I would hope that the scientific curiosity piece would be enough for most people to think it's important, but I'm also keenly aware it, it's, it's a little, a little naive. naive, which is um, rare for you. I know. Go and say that. I know. Let's, <laughs> let's just be clear. There aren't too many rays of sunshine hopes that come from me, but that's yeah. one of them. Um, <laughs> I, I think I, I do think like the, so there, there are sort of two parts to this. One is that um, I think it's really important to know about the process by which scientists do this discovery, because in a certain sense, it sounds super cool, but it's also really old, right? Like we've been doing spectroscopy for quite a while, which is one of the main ways in which um, we're discovering these biosignatures. Do you want do you want to tell people about spectroscopy, or you want me to? I, I feel like I should yield to the person who's truly a chemist. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's let's first yield to Zach, who loves oh, yeah, it. Sure. So let's hear that first, and then, and then you can correct the stuff. Go ahead. And right. then I could just. <laughs> I think- I think that was the when we were talking beforehand. It was like Zach thinks this is super cool, but only knows the basics, and Rachel knows everything else and is super smart about no, chemistry. No, no. But no, I think this is basically science magic, and I love the fact that people figured out what this is. Like, like you you know the the prism, the prism that they, we discovered that it breaks up white light into all of these different spectrum of, of light. You get the rainbow and all that wonderful stuff. Um, but then in the mid-1800s, it was uh, Joseph von Fraunhauer. Fraun, it's, a, it's, a, it's a name that pronounced in a way that's not that. German McGerman. Um, German McGerman <laughs> face um, realized that if you took, um, if you took the, the, the prism and you looked at the light from the sun, and then you also looked at the light from a uh, flame that they gave different colors. And so he created um, something called dif- diffraction grading, which, uh, I mean, just to super oversimplify it. It's just like it's a ton of parallel slits constructed in such a way that you end up with really fine lines instead of that instead of that um, broad rainbow. And so then a couple decades later, our boy Bunsen was using his burners and was burning chemicals and then looking at the way that the rainbow shows up on the other side and realized that if you burn different chemicals, you got different colors on, on the other side and that you could put together a fingerprint for the atomic structure of the thing you were burning. So like if you burn carbon or you burn phosphorus, like you, you'll end up with a different color signature on the other side, which is just, it's just so cool. And then astronomers realized like you can look. Rachel, you're um, you're muted. Rachel, Uh you're muted. Rachel's muted and she's going to correct me. Damn it. I hate that (laughs) when I say something and I'm muted. Correct me. Um, no, no, I'm sorry to interrupt your excitement. I just wanted to share that in case that seems, in case uh, some of our listeners have never used a Bunsen burner and have no idea what that actually is, I'm not correcting you, Zach, just adding, that is exactly what happens with fireworks. Mm-hmm. 
So every single one of us understands and knows that kind of chemistry that was given to us then because that's how modern day fireworks work. Okay, keep going with your excitement. Okay, so um, astronomers realize so that you could right like now. put this in a telescope and then you could look at a star and then each of the stars would have a different rainbow signature. And so you could then work out by, you know, burning different elements on a Bunsen burner to get the fingerprints that like what that star is burning. And like, and then later on, we realized that um, when the, we started discovering exoplanets, not, not too long ago. And one of the ways that we discovered it is if you look really close at a star, that there'll be moments where it will dim just a little bit. And what's happening there is that the planet is, is uh, transiting the, the 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 star right in between us and so it kind of it takes a little bit of the light out and so we're able to figure out all kinds of things about that but one of the things is there's just a little itty bit of bit of atmosphere sometimes that the light from that star goes through that atmosphere and then by looking at the chemical composition of that star versus what comes through that atmosphere you can tell what that atmosphere of that exoplanet is made out of and so we're able to tell partially by the wobble of the the star how close that planet is and then what the atmosphere is made out of and so we can look into the distant space and we can say <clears throat> that's a planet that is within a habitable zone that has breathable air that we could move to and all of that with a rainbow and that's just amazing <laughs> and i love it <laughs> And every single person needs to have a love like that. I wish all of you could see Zach's face right now. It's amazing. It's a it rainbow fingerprint giddy. that lets you giddy. look into the atmosphere of planets we'll never go to. And that's the sort of thing that we point at Venus and then are able to see what the clouds of Venus are made out of. Because if we've sent a probe to Venus, like into the, into the planet, and the planet on the surface is hot enough to Idiot. melt lead. And like the atmosphere is thicker <laughs> than water. Like it's it's not a habitable place. All of that runaway greenhouse gas, you know, note to future generations. Future Christmas, right? <laughs> future. The ghost of future. <laughs> the, ghost of, of, the ghost of Earth Christmas future. <laughs> Thank you. That's what I was trying to say. It's Venus. Oh, that's awful. <laughs> um, so we're able to see that there is this cloud of phosphine in the upper parts of the atmosphere. And correct me if I'm wrong or further explain, but the only way that phosphine is created on Earth is through a as a byproduct of, of microbial life, mm -hmm. right? And it smells like awful farts. And yeah. yeah, Yellowstone. Think think Yellowstone geysers. Okay, right. Is it's it's. I think the similar smell is what you get with sulfur. I've never been to Yellowstone, oh. but I do have. Well, I do have boys, and <laughs> there are a lot of smells in my house. <laughs> and so, but the fact that we're seeing that, and we think that's what it is, but we can't really tell for sure until we go like take a spoonful, right? And just because it's only made that way on Earth doesn't mean that there's not a way that it could be made otherwise. So it's not a definitive sign. It's not like a welcome mat on Venus or anything like that. But it is a tantalizing possibility and an avenue for more funding in the future.
Am I am I on track with that? Oh yeah, you're no, doing, you did real good. Yes. You're doing great. The, I would, I'm just going to add a couple of pieces um, from the spectroscopy side, which is Zach really talked about the visible light spectrum, um, right? The rainbow that we can all see, which is teeny, teeny, tiny <laughs> um, as far as spectrums are concerned. And it really depends on what you're trying to look at, what kind of instrument and what kind of spectrometry you want to be doing. So we have this teeny itty bitty thing of visible, and this is really wavelengths. That's that's what we're looking at. How fast is something something coming towards you? You can sort of imagine just like ripples in a pond, how close they are together, and then the further they get out. Um, so we also have nearest in the visible spectrum is the ultraviolet on one side and infrared on the other. Again, in terms of how how densely these waves come at you, infrared is takes a little bit longer, and ultraviolet comes at you really fast. Um, then we also, of course, have X rays and gamma waves, microwave waves, and radio waves, which are the the sort of really slow moving ones. So we can use each of these different tools, each of these different wavelengths to identify what is happening. So um, for Zach's point, we don't just have to go get a teaspoonful of the atmosphere. We can use other techniques to say, oh, what else, what other spectrum can I be using? Right. So when we look at far distant galaxies and far distant exoplanets, we can use lots of those different techniques to actually determine what we're looking at. And when you are able to have a layering, a map layering, um, you're, you're able to identify it much more clearly and with much more certainty. And I think that's one of, um, when we look at headlines, that's where non-scientists or non-scientific literate people get get um, tripped up. A stumbling block is this uncertainty. We actually, science is built on uncertainty, mm-hmm. which makes most of us a little bit uncomfortable. I think we've been seeing that even more with um, with the COVID, mm-hmm. with the COVID pandemic, where how quickly science can change. And that's a that's an okay thing to see it change. Um, just had to put that little plug in that we want that uncertainty because then we're saying, ah, we don't know 100% certain. So that's why when you have a science agency such as NASA communicating to us what they have found, they have to build that in until we're really able to get all of the layering done and feel and reproduce the data, right? That's another really big thing about science is you have to be able to do the experiment again and get the same results. Then we'll be able to come across we. <laughs> That's the royal we. <laughs> we'll be able to come. <laughs> None of us are astronauts, unfortunately, or work at NASA. We'll be able to understand we, the population, well, the public, will be able to say, wow, there is, there is clarity there. And one final thing that I just want to say in terms of, well, on Earth, phosphine is coming from, you know, probably a, a bio, uh, some life form. But imagine, imagine looking at something and saying, oh, it has carbon. Therefore, I found diamonds. Mm. That's the leap that is an analogous leap. We can't make that leap. We can just say, we found something. And we think this is what it is, but we can't say, ah, yes, for certain, it's 100%, it's diamonds, or in this case, it definitely came from life as opposed to your graphite pencil. Um, but so. I, I do think that like point about the 
science is built on uncertainty is what's mm-hmm. really key about this as well and why I think it's so significant. Because the uncertainty that we okay. feel on the planet is manageable. I mean, it's overwhelming at times, but mostly manageable. Mm-hmm. And then when you expand that to the sheer vastness of the cosmos, I don't think it's manageable anymore. And I think there's like a fundamental shift that occurs when you make that change in scale in terms of how we think about our sense of place and the anxiety and uncertainty that can produce. That's the downer we were There you go. (laughs) Well, I would just like to say that the ancients... The ancients named Venus, Venus, because it's the brightest in the sky, and so they named it after the goddess of beauty. Um, But in Greco-Roman mythology, uh, Venus was born when Kronos cut off his his dad's penis and threw it into the water, and the blood mixed with the sea foam, and out of the bloody castration sea foam came Venus in a clamshell as uh, portrayed by the artist dude. And so it being this awful soup of nasty chemicals actually works out pretty well. So (laughs) my my hat's off to the Greeks and the Romans. uh, You've worked this out in ways you didn't realize. My juvenile brain was going all over the place with that conversation, Zach. Well, that's why I didn't mention that... Cronus's father was Uranus because I knew that you would love that. <laughs> we just sigh and say, ah, the Ian. Yeah, that's right. Well, so the the uh, the ancient people did have a way of handling the awful uncertainty that comes from being alive, and all of the things that you cannot control, and that was through these beautiful, wonderful myths, right? And we've kind of we've made myth a bad word these days, where we say like, <sighs> "Oh, that's just a myth." I'm like, oh, well, yes, but it's still is powerful. It still has meaning. And is there like a way that we can recapture the idea and the power of myth to help with this kind of existential uncertainty that comes when we start looking at the vastness of the universe? I'm going to go with yes. And I wrote a book. (laughs) (laughs) Shameless plug. (laughs) Was Was it this book? I need a signal. Yeah. What was that book? I need uh, living with tiny living. aliens. I I need to send this to you for your uh, signature. That's right. Okay. I'm just warning you. My signatures come with downer messages. As long as you write to the Ian somewhere in there. Check done. <laughs> All right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm waiting for the uh, Rachel Jackson audio book before I finish. Uh, oh, I just have to be authorized. Yes, please do. I. There you go. It's recorded. Because I've been reading it. I I read. So for those that don't know, Ian and I have been reading. And I'm I'm sure someone else has been also reading. But Ian, I've started reading Adam's book. Wait, wait, Um, wait, 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 wait. We both bought it. Only you have started reading it. (laughs) Uh, My apologies. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) 
We bought it on and the so same what day. What you're saying <laughs> is that when we start talking about this book in a couple of weeks, Adam will be like, Adam and I will be the only ones who have read it. Is that <laughs> yeah, I will have done this and thumbed through it and picked up all the words I need. When I got it and I saw how close together the sentences are, and how small the, the so, font is. I was like, oh, crap. There's <laughs> a lot of big words. No spacing. This is like half Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of big words. Book. It is, it is yeah. dense. So I, when I come across, so this is from my perspective, and Adam can certainly say more, and we will be talking more about Adam's book um, in a couple episodes. Um, I actually read out loud because mm-hmm. I find that it, it helps me. Oh, I will do that um, too sometimes. It, it helps me to read out loud, but there was a there was like three pages that I was reading towards the beginning out loud, and it was talking about the interdisciplinary um, concept. And it's like every other word was like, "Come on, dude, just use a slash or something." <laughs> You're killing me here. Um, they don't like slashes in the publishing house. I, yeah, I'm, I. Yes. I don't like slashes either. Okay. Well, I like I like the slash because then you don't have to say the, the $10 million word 50 times in a single mm-hmm. paragraph. That's true. Um but that was a that was a little tangent. Um I think uh, I had a segue and then I lost it. Sorry. Um, Power of myth. Thank you. Of space. Thank you. Existential nothingness. Um, so no. <laughs> something that we forget when we're talking about mythology and terming something mythology is that it's only our modern understanding of something which happened in the past. I don't believe the Greeks called them called what they were doing mythology. I think they called it theology. Right? It was their understanding of how to live in the world. So to Zach's point that we do something damaging when we call it, oh, it's just a myth. I also think that it's very beautiful. And I also think it's wrong to call it Greek mythology. It's Greek theology, right? It, it was never mythology. It's only become that because we have, de- we have decided that there's a different theology that we'd rather ascribe ourselves to. Um, Rather and and look at those as just folk tales, but for them that was that was real life. So if we imagine where we are now, and fast forward two thousand years, and this this kind of goes to uh, I think perhaps Adam's point: How will we be looking at ourselves in a while? And how does this information, another biogenesis, how does that actually shift our understandings of who we are? Right, the 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 all important narcissistic selfish question of well, what's in it for me, or how do I find myself in this, and what right why why do I care, is really to answer that internal question of when we see something out there, it allows us to actually journey to the inside and ask ourselves these questions from a much more um, theological and philosophical standpoint rather than just the pure science. Um, curiosity that I think is inherent in this, but if even if if not that, to really ask ourselves what is our purpose for being here? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the other example we have of that, right, as human beings, where we suddenly discovered people who we had no idea existed, is 17th and 18th century colonialism. Mm. I don't think that went so right. well. So, yeah. so I'd like us to find a different way. If you're going to be talking about the ways in which we're going to decenter human beings from being the only exist, 
mm-hmm. or life on this planet. Let's do it that way. If you're going to decenter life on this planet is the only instance of life in the universe, I would like to come up with some means by which we make meaning out of that that doesn't lead to the prospects that we've had previously, like colonialism and, you know, subjugation. Genocide. genocide. Problems with germs. Right. Does any <laughs> does anyone um, who keeps up with NASA more than I do know if NASA is having those conversations mm. about like what, how to take care of the things that we might find or how to be responsible? I think this maybe goes back to our conversation about trying to keep a pristine environment when mm-hmm. we travel and, you know, not leave our germs, but. What, what do those conversations look like? Yeah, they have a whole department on planetary protection, like specifically related to these sorts of issues. But I think what's tricky about it is, right, like the ethics of this is is really vast. Like you can talk about it in a lot of different ways. Like um, you can talk about your moral obligation to another living thing if you found it. Um, you can talk about the mineral rights of these various um, astronomical bodies and space mining. Um, and, uh, do we owe a, a debt or should we leave as quote unquote natural various features of the wider solar system? If we were to travel there, you also get into some ethical questions about, is it a good use of earth's resources to try and send people to these places if we can study them so well from here? Cause you know, space launch is tough on the, uh, you know, climate. Right, exactly. I think when we look at ethics, and I don't know how many people have studied ethics that much. Um, I particularly have been fond of medical ethics. And in medical ethics, there's really um, three three pieces that you have to keep into account. Um, one of them is resources. One of them is autonomy. And one of them is do no harm. Right. So if we, again, I, uh, that's only the ethics that I know. I'm sure that there's other branches of ethics that deal with, that have additional topics. But I think those three are, are still fairly broad when we look at this. And when we say, are we spending our resources well? Are we doing no harm? And at the same time, what is the personal autonomy? And we really, we really have to struggle with that on a global global ethics. It cannot be singular, which is, I think we're certainly seeing that when we look at the Amazon rainforest. This is a global piece that we need to be focusing on, but it's it's inside a sovereign union, a sovereign nation. So how much autonomy is actually there versus the resources that are there? So when we send up all of these different rockets, which take a lot of resources, take a lot of money, and use the resources that are in, right? If we're talking about uh, carbon footprint, hello, this is, um, that's a big deal to send up every rocket that we're doing. So I think it's it's a global question that we have to be asking, and it can't just be NASA. So to take it to the mythology aspect here, um, I think one of the reasons it's important to continue the wasteful, um, human-based travel and exploration as opposed to just doing it more efficiently and expediently from Earth is the story of it. Because Mm -hmm. we find that when Americans especially get bored with space travel, then the funding gets cut. And so this was 
one of the reasons, <laughs> actually, in uh, in the eighties, there was a brief plan to send Big Bird into space. Um, on the, Wait, I didn't uh, know about this. On the Challenger. Oh, the, oh, that yeah. would have gone so poorly. Yeah, and the um, Carol Spinney was on board. He was gonna, but. After a while, they realized that it was the suit was going to disrupt the mission enough that it wasn't going to be worth it. But they they wanted a way to get America's youth back interested in space travel the way it was in the 60s, because kids weren't wanting to grow up and be astronauts anymore. And it was hard for NASA to find the funding because there wasn't the public engagement. So they needed to create a story. And so they thought, well, we'll send Big Bird up. Every school in America will be watching. And when they couldn't do that, they had a contest. And they sent a teacher instead. And every kid in America was watching that teacher's mm. space shuttle explode on television, which imagine if that was Big Bird, as it was supposed to be, how much that would have destroyed a generation. But like, we need this kind of big, showy space stuff. This is why Elon Musk has been so important for this and, you know, sending his car into space with this, you know, like these big showy things, get people interested, get them talking. It's a grand story and some great narrative bringing back, you know, the the travelers and explorers of old um, that get people interested and get people funding it. And so I think we need that in order to get the funding, unfortunately, and to inspire people, because the boring science of it is really interesting to people who like science, but that's about it. Well, I remember, so while I was at uh, UVA working on my PhD, one of the members of my um, committee was an astronomer, or still is an astronomer, um, Ed Murphy, and he, I remember learning from him about how, you know, we have learned so much more and it's a lot cheaper and safer to just send robots and probes up into space. Um, just more efficient, cheaper, more ethical. Um, and that we definitely get a lot more science from those explorations than we do sending people. But as you just said, Zach, it's the sending the people and bringing them back that gets the attention. And so, because I remember when you saw me, I said, wait, that's not well, while I, as a science person, find it interesting, knew that that wasn't working. He said, well, that's why they keep sending people. Um, one of the reasons, Yeah, did right? you know so. China just sent a probe, a robot, to the moon? Mm -hmm. Right. And to it's going to be the first one to bring Yesterday. moon rocks back since, yep. you know, back in the Apollo days. But no one's talking about it because it's a robot. But you send an astronaut up there from any country and everyone's going to be talking about mm -hmm. it. That makes so much sense. And it makes me think of uh, like all the videos that Chris Hadfield, yeah. uh, who's a, who's an astronaut and has, yes. you know, recorded uh, like himself singing David Bowie covers in <laughs> space. And he's done a TED talk and just like he is this human interest story always of like what it's like to live in outer space and to be an astronaut. And so mm -hmm. like he, uh, it, 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 I think people like Chris Hadfield, that's what kids look at and think, oh, that's what it's like to be an astronaut. That's why I want to go mm -hmm. like live in outer he space. He wrote and recorded um, an album from up there, by the way, yeah. that you can buy. And it's, it's, it's decent. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, th I think the idea of the difference between a robot and a human is representation. You can see yourself mm -hmm. there, right? And if you can see yourself doing it, then you want to do it. 
None of us see ourselves as robots. I shouldn't say none. Very few of us <laughs> see ourselves as robots. Uh, we'll talk about robots next. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's hard to it's hard to imagine that you yourself could be there. I mean, we see that in every place where diversity is a challenge, right? That's not just a robot to human piece. It's it's any cultural, any any diversity that we're looking at. And so I think that's part of it. That it's it's an interest story because we could be I I could be the next one, right? Like when we saw. Um, Hanukkah socks on the International Space Station. It's like, yes, it's like Hanukkah in space is amazing. And they were socks. Like it's not, but it was an interest story for, for, for a small group of people, but admittedly, but yeah, I think it's that idea that I can see myself there. Um, so it's less about, I, I shouldn't say less. I think it's in addition to getting an interest it's seeing seeing the mirror um, is helpful well just random question would any of you, if you could do life over at this point, would you become an astronaut? Yes. 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 I'm still holding out. I'll be the first theologian in space. <laughs> um, I'm I'm waiting for the Space Force to start hiring chaplains. And then I'm sorry, church. I love you, but I'm gone. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, when they uh, – what was it? You know, when they started um, seeking applications for the next, you know, for the um, the new astronaut corps um, in the late, like, like 2007, 2008, for the next heavy lift vehicle and things like that, it was when I was down in Louisiana, so 2008, when we moved down there and started doing work with at NASA Michoud, the Michoud Assembly Facility, right outside of New Orleans. Um and had met a lot of astronauts. It was really cool. And just meeting a lot of different people from, from NASA and involved, and was telling them, man, I would love to do this. Like, it would be so neat. And one of them did encourage me to consider applying, especially since I had a PhD, um, that she was saying, you, know, you your expertise with education, you know, you never know what could happen. Um, but, you know, I decided against it, but I thought that was really interesting. So, cause I figured there's, they wouldn't, I wouldn't be good for that. And, and she explained that, no, that, those types of positions are still needed. So there you I'm go, Adam. Sell There's my a little bit of to hope. Elon Musk. <laughs> <laughs> in the hope that he will send me up in a Tesla. <laughs> I plan to be the second person to administer communion on the moon um, after Buzz Aldrin. <laughs> Fun fact. <laughs> Some of the right after he left his. Space. I was going to say <laughs> some of some of the space poop on the moon contains the body of Christ in some way, shape, or form, depending on your theology. So that'll be some fun science. <laughs> I wonder what decomposed Jesus looks like then. <laughs> <laughs> I have some answers that I'm not legally allowed to give as an ordained minister. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, well, if we're talking representation, I think they need a rabbi. You know, they need a they need a international rabbi. Yeah. yeah. So are we all applying together? Sure. Is like, that is what, it? what's happening? Well, I, oh, I think that's a brilliant idea. Down the wormhole, up on the we ISS. Could, we could do Mars. a podcast Dude. from space. I think that would be amazing. Yes. Well, I still Let's hold. Do it. First podcasters. <laughs> on the moon. If you look at our podcast stats and where the countries That's that right. listen to it, there is a couple of people who listen every week from other, quote unquote. <laughs> Like not from a country. And I still say that that's, those are astronauts on the space station. And I have no reason to say otherwise. And so to our astronaut listeners, hi, we love you. And we'd like, we'd like to get a ride next time. I don't, I don't know how much each of you has watched The Big Bang oh, yeah. Theory, um, the show where Daniel and I are rewatching it. And we just got to the point where one of the characters, Howard Wallowitz, oh um, so is able to go up into space and he's just utterly miserable, right, in his astronaut training. And I feel a kinship to that where I really want to be there. But beyond the absolute, the question that we started with of the terrifyingness of, of losing one's tether, I am utterly terrified of heights. I am my my physical body is desiring to maintain my own speed. Like I get I get car sick <laughs> while driving. Um, I like driving. I get car sick. I can't go on a roller coaster. I mean, my body is just not really meant to do that. But mentally, I I'd love to just like I'd rather just be transported to space. I think I think once we get transporting like the transporting abilities that's what I'd like. So, but I really appreciate Adam like this idea that you've been bringing up too of what's in it for us. And also everyone really needs to read the show notes that I will finally be putting together again if you haven't read about um, <laughs> I'll just throw myself under the bus. It's all good. It's 2020. It's been a tough year. Um, yeah, just a little a little strange. It's just it's just, but I'm going to put lots of stuff in there about the phosphine because I think the scientific curiosity is really amazing. And and um, and for our listeners, tell us what's amazing about space for you. Yeah, um, and I know. Let us let us know. Let us let us enjoy your absolutely. giddiness. At the end here, um, because it seems like this is a ripe time for a non sequitur. I I have one more story yeah. that didn't fit into the conversation that I need to share with our listeners. You may have already known about how um, Gus Grissom almost sunk NASA, um, almost got all of the funding cut for NASA. Um, one of the early um, early astronauts, right? This is this is um, I think this was in the Gemini. Uh, Gemini program. And so they go up to space and they're just going up there for a little while and then coming back down. They're testing all these, all the technology of going up there and coming down and all that. And he goes up with his buddy, astronaut number two, and <laughs> he pulls out a corned beef sandwich from his pocket. <laughs> Well, from inside of his spacesuit that the guy who helped get him into the spacesuit had smuggled in there for him because he wanted he the the there's a deli near <laughs> near where the launch site was that made the best corned beef sandwiches and he really wanted to eat one in space because <laughs> of course you would. This is the kind of guy I relate with. And so 
he 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 takes this oh out God. and the audio of it's amazing and he's like um the guy the other guy's like what's that and he looks at him he's like it's a corned beef sandwich you want some and he's like why do you have a corned beef sandwich and he's like because i wanted one and and then so the parts of it start to like come apart because like Oh no! On the ISS, they eat tor- they don't eat bread. They eat tortillas because bread falls apart, and then the crumbs will fly everywhere, and they'll get stuck in the circuitry, <laughs> yep. and like will destroy the thing. And so oh there's like mustard starting to come out, and he's and he's like, "This ended up not being a very good idea." And the other astronaut was like, "No, this was not a good idea." And he's like, "It's not. It's not even that good because it's been like shoved in his on his skin and." It's all like warm and squished. (laughs) So they didn't die. But when they got back, um, the Senate, the senator who was trying to cut funding to NASA because they saw it as just a ridiculous waste of money was like, see, this is why we need to get rid of NASA, because these people don't even take it seriously. We are spending millions of dollars to, to send people up here to do real science. And they were supposed to test the viability of this dehydrated space food. And this guy's up here wasting millions of taxpayer dollars on a pastrami on, on a corned beef sandwich, not even a pastrami sandwich, a corned beef sandwich. And they had this huge argument in the Senate and NASA had to put out a statement that there will be no further sandwich related incidents in future flights. And <laughs> later, That's amazing. but the best part is later in his autobiography, he says that it's not even the first sandwich that was taken into space. <laughs> It was just the first one that got caught. <laughs> wow. That's amazing. So very clearly, we should be thinking that next time our question needs to be, what would you smuggle with you? What food into would you space? take? Absolutely. Yes. Spoiler alert for next time. <laughs> oh, my God. That is, I haven't laughed that hard in a long time. And I, and I, I just, Not I, since 2019. I, I had to look this... Um, and i just had to look it up apparently (laughs) too soon apparently um the corned beef sandwich did come back in 1981 um but in bite-sized cubes Ah. and uh and, and this article is saying, the mission was commanded by John Young, who was rather disappointed by the public's attention to the sandwich rather than the successful Gemini program. <laughs> so when, when we talk about seeing ourselves there or representation or getting excited about it, I think we also have to for, not forget the science and, and not focus too much on, on the sandwich. <laughs> have a nice balance between sandwich and science. But there's a really important element of our common humanity in all of this, that even the most serious, rigorously trained scientific athletes that these astronauts are still are a little bit silly. And yeah. even they yeah. want a sandwich now and again. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> That's See, but at the same story. time, too, stories like that, even though it was used to try to defund, I think helps it make it more memorable for others and be like, they're still human. Let's have some fun, you know? 
Right, that was a story from 55 yeah. years ago. Imagine what other hijinks. What was the science that they like uh, discovered, or <laughs> what did they discover scientifically on the sandwich journey? Or do we only know About and the remember sandwich? the sandwich? Um, I mean, it was Gemini <laughs> three, so they were they were testing launch and orbit and you know, living in space for a couple of days. Gemini was all about getting to Apollo and getting to the moon. So I, right. I, it so, worked. Yeah. We got there. It, 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 it successfully met its objectives. Yeah. That's pretty funny. But anyway. <laughs> that's pretty good. <laughs> I have several other NASA-related ridiculous stories that we'll share in another space episode. <laughs> so, but this brings us all the way back to the beginning. What if some of that beef sandwich floated away and the biosignature of beef is out there? Or if Ian yes. couldn't reach it. I know. <laughs> but... <laughs> I don't like corned beef sandwiches, so that one I would be okay. <laughs> that one would not freak me out. Um, and I think, like, do would we feel more responsible for the space cows or, you know, the space beef, the, the space poop, the space tardigrades? Like, would we feel more responsible for the biosignatures that were the ones that we put there? <laughs> Intentionally or unintentionally. Oh, fascinating. Versus um, biosignatures that are more foreign to our planet or like are foreign mm-hmm. to our planet. We don't understand them. We don't know where they came from. I think it's interesting to think about how we would how we would interact with those biosignatures depending on where they actually originated. Hmm. Especially if we're looking, you know, several thousands down, several thousands or longer than that down the road and they've turned into monsters that want to eat us, right? Right. We we said, but but remember our ancestors, our common ancestor way back when. (laughs) Gus Grissom, our common ancestor. (laughs) (laughs) This has been episode 67 of the Down the Wormhole podcast. This has also been the last episode of 2020 as we'll be taking the next two weeks off. Despite being a ridiculous year overall, it's been a great year for the podcast, and I know that I speak for my fellow hosts when I say thank you for being on this journey with us. We have all sorts of fun stuff planned for 2021, so stay tuned and have a safe new year. I'll see you in 2021.